Hello and welcome to the Legal Edition. I'm your host, Attorney Mary Kay Aloyan. Our show topic today, the International Bill of Human Rights, Politics and Priorities, Where Does America Stand? My guest is Attorney Jamil Darkois. He is the director of the American Civil Liberties Union's Human Rights Program. He leads a team of lawyers in counterterrorism, racial justice, immigrants' rights, women's rights, and criminal and juvenile justice. Let's welcome Attorney Jamil Dacroix. Welcome, Attorney Dacroix. Thank you for having me on. Now, could you please explain for the audience what is the International Bill of Human Rights? Absolutely. So international human rights uh, law, which is uh, a big body of international laws that were essentially put together, adopted by uh, countries all over the world since uh, 1948 or and shortly after World War II. And when we say international uh, bill of rights, international human rights uh, bill of rights, it really refers to a number of international treaties uh, that were adopted since 1948 uh, that had to do with uh, human rights, uh, the, particularly the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. This is the main and the primary international treaty or the convention that was signed and ratified by over, I think now, 165, 66 uh, countries all over the world, including the United States, that specifically addresses civil and political rights, you know, from freedom of speech to freedom from torture to equality, to uh, gender equality, political participation, freedom of religion, um, all those issues that are really in the center of, of the uh, civil and political uh, uh, participation and enjoyment of human rights in that level. And then the second international treaty that was also adopted um, around the same time in the in the late 60s and went into force in the 70s uh, is the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. Uh, those two covenants uh, that were adopted again in 1966 went into force in the 70s and then countries ratified them. The United States was very late in ratifying those to human rights treaties. Uh, we ratified the ICCPR, the Covenant on Civil Political Rights, only in 1992. And the International Covenant on Civil, uh, on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights has, was signed uh, by President Carter, uh, but has never been ratified by the United States. So we're, uh, we're talking about um, a gap, a serious gap in terms of our international law obligations in this area. So these two covenants together uh, in addition to other treaties that were adopted, again, since 1948, one on against torture, one uh, on the rights of the child, one on the uh, rights of women or, or uh, eliminating discrimination against women, one uh, most recently on the rights of people with disabilities. There's another one on migrant rights and one against forced disappearances. Uh, all of those treaties, uh, all these conventions really form the International Bill of Rights. Okay. And what has been happening lately? I know there's been some activity with the State Department. Can you explain that? The Trump administration, uh, since it took office in 2017, uh, made it very clear that they are not going to abide and follow international law and will not be cooperating with international human rights uh, bodies. In fact, they did not show up for uh, human right, the first human rights hearing that happened in March of 2017, before the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, which is the, the primary uh, regional human rights tribunal or body that covers human rights in the whole region, in the Western Hemisphere, including in, in the United States, North America, South America, Central America. And it made it very clear that it's going to um, uh, undermine uh, the international system that has was created since 1948, since the the, uh, the United States helped um, adopt the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the subsequent treaties and, uh, and conventions and really a better protections for human rights, better understanding uh, of, of people's rights, regardless of borders, regardless of citizenship, regardless of 
um, the people's uh, backgrounds. So that is was the real intended purpose of the of the Trump administration from day one, and it was reflected in sometimes defunding international human rights organizations. Something that was reflected in not cooperating with international human rights experts. For example, they did not allow UN human rights experts to visit the United States. Have this, has, I just want to interject here. Has this ever happened before? Not in that scale, uh, not in that way and very uh, strong opposition to international and setting really a dangerous example for the international community, for us, particularly for governments that that uh, welcome the United States of being uh, not compliant with international law. Because as you know, uh, there's a lot of uh, countries that have been um, considered uh, for years as violators of human rights. And the United States, while never really had a perfect record, not even close to that, has tried to use international human rights in order to engage some other governments, uh, uh, you know, holding, trying to, uh, particularly those that are not in line with the United States uh, foreign policies or United States foreign interests, uh, economic interests in particular. But at, at, but this recent development with the Trump administration taking really a very uh, Im uh, implicit and, and explicit uh, policy that is undermining and targeting uh, the international human rights system as a whole is unprecedented. And so there was a uh, it was a lot of pushback from from the United Nations human rights bodies, from another other countries. Um, the Trump administration, as you know, went even further. It even attacked and sanctioned the International Criminal Court, which is the court that was established in, in 2002 um, to hold perpetrators uh, who were responsible for the worst uh, atrocities in the world, uh, namely war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide. And the United States uh, was doing that in order to protect its own uh, uh, people, or particularly people who were involved in the United States armed services, in the intelligence services, in war crimes and torture in Afghanistan in the context of the armed conflict in Afghanistan. They also said that it would protect Israel from violations of human rights in the occupied Palestinian territories. So that, that was really a, a new law for uh, this administration, where President Trump issued recently an executive order basically designating the prosecutor of the, the chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court as someone that, uh, as someone that could not be, uh, anyone could not, could, could be criminalized if they would provide any support and assistance uh, uh, to the chief prosecutor. And that, that's never seen before. And that is now subject, by the way, to litigation by a number of organizations uh, to order to push back on that. But the most recent thing that happened at the State Department was equally troubling and very problematic, which is that uh, Secretary Pompeo created a commission that he called Commission on, on Unalienable Rights. And he, the, the announcement of the creation of the commission uh, basically said that uh, the intention of this commission is to advise the secretary on uh, U.S. foreign policy on human rights and to revisit uh, basically what human rights have been uh, as we understand it. And it referred specifically to the way uh, that uh, the United States own founding uh, fathers, particularly uh, the uh, the so-called, uh, you know, the Declaration of Independence and how we refer the United States to uh, in inalienable rights. Now, it sounds that's fine as far as far as you know. If you're just thinking about, oh, how do we really ma match international human rights with our commitment to fundamental uh, freedoms uh, historically? Even though, as you know, the United States has always been uh, uh, has had a, a serious flaws in in its own commitment to. Uh, everyone's rights, individual human rights, particularly towards enslaved people at the time, towards you know um, disfranchisement of women, uh, uh, the, the the atrocities uh, and the genocide that happened against uh, native people and indigenous peoples in the United States. But nevertheless, it presented itself over the years as the the oldest democracy that's fully committed to human rights. And now, the the Trump administration was trying to use that as a way to redefine what human rights are. And that was really a, a serious uh, 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 matter because 
if you're if you look at what they are suggesting, first of all, they for for example suggested. Yes, let's talk about it. I, I think it's called a hierarchy, is it yes. not? Yeah, let's talk so about they, that hierarchy. So what what the commission uh, that Pompeo created uh, last year uh, intended to do is to to suggest ways for the U.S. government uh, on how to reshape its human rights policies and to um, bring them in line with the United States understanding what fundamental inalienable rights are. But essentially what they were trying to do is to redefine uh, essentially what human rights are and create a new hierarchy of rights. Under international human rights law, there is no right that, uh, that, that, that has a supreme or has more uh, protection than others. There are certain rights that could not be, for example, derogated from, like the obligations of the states cannot derogate from the right to life um, during uh, emergency situation. They cannot derogate from the, the, the right to um, f uh, the freedom from torture during an emergency situation. There are other kinds of rights, but as essentially all rights are at the same level. And you can't really start uh, uh, grading uh, you can't prioritize rights in a way that will be essentially um, giving certain rights or certain people with certain rights more protections than other, others. The idea of the universal human rights is that all rights are indivisible. All rights are inherently indivisible. They are equal. They should be always protected at all times with the exceptions that I mentioned around derogation from obligations in a time of emergency. But you can't really say, oh, I'm going to only protect the right to free speech, but I'm not going to protect the right to adequate uh, housing. Or uh, I want to protect the right to freedom of assembly, but I don't want to protect the right to education, for example, right? So what, the, what this, this commission essentially did is came up with the idea that there's because of our history as the United States that uh, cherished and established the separation between church and state, religious freedom for all, that this should be getting more prominence in United States foreign policy on human rights. So that religious freedom should be on top and essentially kind of putting religion, because as we know, religious freedom has always been used and um, uh, as a a, a way to uh, assert the rights of certain religions. Uh, although the rhetoric and the general statements will tell you, oh, we uphold the religious freedom of all people. But if you look really closely at the United States government record, particularly under conservative Republican administration, what they mean by that is protecting the rights of certain religion. In that case, partic particularly protecting the rights of Christians, whether in the United States or around the world. And yet, any other religions will have a different kind of priority. That's why there is real contrast between the Trump administration saying that they uphold freedom of religion and religious rights and religious freedom, and the same time issuing the Muslim ban uh, as the first executive order on that the, the Trump administration or President Trump issued. Right? There is a real uh, a conflict paradox. between the two. The two. So this hierarchy is really distorting, and is. Uh, is, is a clear way of undermining what the system of human rights should be and trying particularly to downgrade social economic rights, which are ones that are essential, particularly now in the COVID era, you know, when we are seeing so many people dying because of the lack of access to healthcare, because of the way that they are not protected with, with the very basic rights to, to enjoy those social economic rights. So that is going to, uh, that's a report. It was, uh, Secretary Pompeo tried to, you know, um, spread his own ideological uh, approach to human rights at the United Nations uh, just last month before the, the United Na Nations General Assembly. Uh, they're organizing all kinds of events around the world. But I think the international community gets uh, mm -hmm. most, most countries, particularly those democratic countries that are really genuinely committed to human rights, reject this understanding of, of human rights. That's why we're hopeful that this initiative is, is not going to go anywhere. And even if Trump wins the election, uh, I think there will be a very, very strong rejection from many U.S. allies, particularly in Europe, to this understanding uh, of, of, of rights that is intended to 
uh, to devalue human rights and human dignity for all and to put religion and even property in some aspects of the report at the top of the pyramid of uh, fundamental rights. Yeah, let's talk about that because I, I was reading it and I saw that the property and the religion were seemed to be uh, given a higher um, focus of importance over even women's rights, uh, all the other atrocities, like you said, the, uh, the COVID and everything else. Can you want to explain that as well as, and my other question will be, how was Pompeo, Secretary Pompeo's speech received? Absolutely. So the real intention behind, I think, this initiative that I have not had a chance to also mention is that it really, from day one, we, we knew that this is intended to undermine protections, particularly for the most vulnerable and marginalized communities in our society and also uh, in the world. That is um, women uh, particularly when it comes to reproductive rights, uh, right to abortion, uh, sexual reproduction, reproductive rights, that, uh, that something that this administration made it clear that they do not recognize that reproductive rights are part of human rights. And so what they tried to do with this new commission is to try to come up with a framework that would exclude certain protections of human rights for particular groups. So they, they, they don't say that explicitly, but they were trying to say, well, there hasn't really been any uh, uh, universal adoption or recognition of the, the, the rights of women to have an abortion. And therefore they should not be covered as human rights. They also say there's so many rights that are called human rights, and that is not a good idea, right? But the intention of that is really, was not coming from anywhere, but the ideological, politically motivated understanding of rights. That is, only civil political rights, particularly religious freedom and property rights could be more protected. And then when it comes to social economic rights, particularly of women, of LGBTQ communities, again, this is another area where this report suggests that, that it could not be at equal footing because uh, how can you argue that there is uh, something called sexual rights or rights for people who are uh, based on their sexual orientation. Um, so that, that in, in, in essence, was the purpose of this, of this commission, is to come up with a framework that, that looks at rights in a very narrow, uh, narrowly defined way that excludes individuals and, uh, and, and also er erodes a lot of the protections that have been made over the years. Uh, there is a uh, there is a almost a consensus among international human rights bodies that uh, reproductive rights are part of human rights in fact the recent uh, commentary by the un human rights committee which monitors compliance with the international covenant on civil political rights uh, made it very clear uh, the 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 inter-american commission on human rights uh, equally had said that the you know to protect women's rights uh, to abortion is part and parcel of, the, of, of, of her, of their right to equality, to gender equality. And we should not be undermining that right under no, under no, no circumstances. So, um, so that is the, that's the purpose of, of that. And Secretary Pompeo's speech um, was really a, an effort to, to uh, try to push his ideological beliefs uh, and, and to try to offer this new understanding and, and definition of human rights was not really well accepted. In fact, we looked at the countries that have joined in support of the declaration that the United States put forward and Secretary Pompeo uh, at the United Nations. And it, it, it was mainly about 60% of those governments that supported the declaration were governments that have uh, either authoritarian or authoritarian-like regimes. So clearly, this, this framework is not really fit, uh, is not something that uh, countries that, uh, that support human rights, uh, that protect human rights, and they're genuinely um, sensitive and uh, concerned about human rights are the ones that are liking. The ones that are liking, the countries that are liking Secretary Pompeo's speech and his actions are the ones that are authoritarian regimes, that they think that by having the United States lead the way of undermining human rights, it will be easier for them 
to do what they do to their own citizens, to their, uh, to their minority groups, to, to other people who don't have uh, the same protections uh, in their own system. So that is, there was good news for authoritarian regimes, for, for those that are really against human rights in different parts of the world, by the way, from all the way from Latin America to, uh, to Africa, to Middle East and, 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 and Asia. Uh, and so I think that that, that is really uh, not going to, uh, to continue. I think the new administration, if there will be a new administration, this is one of the first thing that they need to do to make it clear where the United States stands with regard to international human rights. And that our international human rights commitments, both under treaty laws, the treaties that we ratified, as well as under international customary law and under even the fact that we are part of the United Nations, because if you are part of the United Nations as a member state, you have to abide by the UN Charter. And the UN Charter has a particular fundamental obligations. And one of them is the respect for everyone's human rights. And there, that is a, a, a something that the United States under the Trump administration uh, has a, a grossly violated and in, continuously tried to undermine uh, through disengaging with international human rights body, defunding or withdrawing from international organizations, um, uh, blocking the country to international scrutiny, uh, bashing international actors, uh, uh, expert on human rights. As I said earlier, sanctioning the, the international criminal court and the prosecutors and treating them as if they were uh, uh, drug smugglers and terrorists. That, uh, that's unprecedented. That is sanctions. Isn't that unprecedented? It is unprecedented. I mean, there's no, no administration had dared to classify, designate uh, lawyers and judges of an international, very well-respected international court that uh, uh, over 125 countries are member of uh, that have, uh, including most of US allies in, in Europe are, are members of this court. And to make it um, difficult for any individual to cooperate and assist the prosecutors, particularly the chief prosecutor now who is designated as someone who would be subject to sanctions. Uh, so we, we think this is a very dangerous step. This is a, an effort, again, to, to undermine uh, uh, the international justice uh, system uh, as it was developed. Nothing is perfect in, in, the, uh, in, in, in that system, but I think that's, that's the, the best that we have, and we have to work to, to improve it rather than attack it, undermine it, and delegitimize it. Well, these treaties, if correct me if I'm wrong, have been in effect since 1948. Well, the, the, the 1948 uh, was the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is declaration is not a treaty, but it was uh, widely adopted by the, uh, by the United Nations uh, and the international community since then. Certain aspects of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights are been, or most of it, was adopted in, uh, in the form of uh, treaty law, meaning treaties that specifically detailed the obligations of states to uphold and protect uh, and realize human rights. Uh, and those become uh, international law obligations. Certain aspects of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights are also part of a customary international law that is also illegally binding on many states, including on the United States. Um, and then you have the way that some countries have adopted laws at the national level uh, to incorporate interna international human rights law in their own systems. The United States is, a, is an outlier because we really don't have a mechanism to fully implement and incorporate international human rights into our system. What we, what we do under our US constitution is ratifying the treaty and basically leave it as is and not do anything after we ratify a treaty. While the, the understanding of the international legal system or a human rights system is that national laws at the national level, which in, in our case, federal, state and local levels, are, the, are they, uh, the way that these treaties should be implemented and translated into laws and policies and programs to, uh, to realize those uh, rights that are in the International uh, Bill of Rights. Uh, and yet, what the United States has done since the early 90s, I mean, we resisted signing and ratifying international human rights treaties for decades, mainly because of uh, 
the racial history of resisting any international scrutiny into our uh, uh, racial, uh, uh, racist laws and segregation, segregation, particularly in the South, uh, with uh, uh, even uh, uh, Senator Bricker uh, trying to introduce an amendment to the U.S. Constitution that would prevent the, uh, the ratification of any international uh, human rights treaty, which fortunately never passed, but it was really close. And since then, what we do with international human rights treaties is that we adopt them very late in the process. We add reservations that make them um, render all, most of those treaties and the provisions really meaningless. We say to the world, we already have existing laws and, and um, federal, state, and local laws that are uh, protecting those rights. So we don't, do, we don't need to do anything further than that. So these countries, including the United States, write their own exclusions to these treaties. Yes, under, look, under international law, the countries have the right to make reservations to treaties. It is permissible. But there are also impermissible reservations. You can't, for example, make a reservation that says, we will not abide by half of the treaty. Uh, or we will, we will have an understanding of a particular provisions in the treaty that is going to defeat the purpose and the object of the treaty. Uh, mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. there's a number of restrictions on how, what, what kind of restrictions and what kind of reservations or conditions you can put forward in order to limit the incorporation or the, uh, when you ratify a treaty. Mm -hmm. And what the United States did was, uh, by the way, widely rejected, or at least there was a, a strong opposition by many other countries when they saw the list of reservations. Some of those reservations came from the point of trying to say, well, we can't really abide by the treaty because we have laws on the books. Uh, we have Supreme Court decisions that allow certain uh, things, uh, certain violations of human rights. For example, when we ratified the International Convent Covenant on Civil Political Rights, we made, it, made a condition that we will not be excluding the execution of juveniles in the United States, which would, would have been prohibited under the ICCPR, under this treaty. And the United States said it's because of our laws at the time, that was in 1992. Uh, um, but as you know, the Supreme Court uh, uh, outlawed the execution of children and then uh, that reservation or condition still remain as such. It never, we never really withdrew from that. Uh, the same with, um, for example, the obligation to, uh, to uh, treat ind individuals uh, uh, as, as, uh, who are under 18 as children when it comes to uh, the criminal legal system, the criminal justice system. The United States has, many states have laws that treat young, uh, young people, particularly under the age of 18, as adults. They try them as adults in the criminal legal system. That is fundamentally in violation of international human rights law. So the United States had to say, well, we can't really make, a, make a, a promise that we will be able to change our laws, or we can't ratify this treaty and, and abide by this obligation because we have certain laws in certain states that allow for juveniles to be treated as adults and be tried in adult uh, criminal uh, uh, system. So there, there's really a, 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 a gap between the United States laws uh, and protections of rights and what is required under international human rights. Uh, and that is, over the years it's been closed and this gap is, 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 is not widening. Maybe under the Trump administration, it got a little bit wider, but. Um, but overall, the, the tendency or the, the projection is that we are going uh, towards more compliance with international human rights. The problem is we don't have mechanism. Uh, for example, the Congress, if you look at legislation, we, we never really look at our international human rights obligations when we pass any new laws, right? That, no, that, that is no. fundamentally uh, problematic because every country under these international treaties have to ensure that its own legislation are compatible with international human rights obligations or commitments. And so when, you, when the legislatures are not doing their job of looking at what international human rights obligations are 
they are basically putting the United States in violations of our international human rights obligations. Every action by the executive has to pass the test or the, uh, the examination of to what extent a particular law, uh, particular policy uh, is incompatible compatible with our international human rights obligations. And that rarely happens, uh, maybe with very um, uh, few exceptions, like in the context of asylum law, uh, immigration uh, particularly, mm -hmm. or in the context of national security. If you remember the debates around the Geneva Conventions on Guantanamo, there was a strong opposition within the Department of Defense against the Bush administration uh, effort to undermine the Geneva Convention. And the people who were, some people, uh, lawyers within the Department of Defense um, rejected that uh, or opposed and tried to push back against uh, the idea that the administration would water down and uh, um, uh, completely ignore uh, major obligations that we took under, under the Geneva Convention. Right, saying it wasn't torture when it was. Right, right, to treat, exactly, to treat everyone humanely in our custody, uh, not to subject anyone to torture or cruelty. Um, you know, the idea of, for example, um, uh, that we could um, create a, 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 a system of detention that is not, uh, not even, uh, no laws would be apply, uh, apl applicable to the, the that's what Guantanamo was about, right? Mm -hmm. That the U.S. Constitution doesn't apply, that was the first argument, and the Geneva Conventions don't apply because these people who are held there do not deserve, are not entitled to the protections under the Geneva Conventions. And therefore, that meant under a memo that was signed by President Bush at the time, that these individuals could be tortured, they could be mistreated. And that is, that is, that is really, and we never really structurally changed the way that we address our international obligations. Yes, President Obama, when he took office, issued an executive order, uh, and then later on, uh, Congress uh, turned this executive order into part of the legislation in, in making sure that people will not be treated, uh, it will not be torture, will not be uh, subject to cruel, inhumane, degrading treatment. But uh, we still, for example, don't have, under federal law, we don't have the crime of torture uh, explicitly enumerated in our criminal code. Uh, the, cr the crime of torture that as defined by the Convention Against Torture, which we ratified in 1994, is only criminalized and is only defined as a crime if it happens overseas, not if it happens in U.S. soil. And the U.S. said, well, we, we don't need to criminalize torture because we also have other laws that essentially uh, criminalize torture, but not really, because if you look at any laws, and we checked all 50 states, including obviously the federal, federal criminal code, there is no criminal domestic uh, um, uh, uh, prohibition of torture as defined by the Convention Against Torture. That's just another example of how we adopt a treaty and yet we do nothing to make sure that those treaties are implemented, followed, and enjoyed by everyone. It's not just about people who are foreign or people who are suspected terrorists. In this case, it's about people who could be in, in police custody. This could be people who could be in prison. It could be in any situation, even uh, could, could be applicable to treatment of police with regard to use of force uh, situations in some instances. Uh, and so we all know we have a big problem in our own country here in the United States that has been, you know, run amok. We, it's just uh, our, 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 our justice system is out of control. It's just not protecting the average American anymore. Absolutely. I mean, we, we looked at one time, we, we created like a, a fact sheet uh, about how, how human rights, uh, how the United States is doing about human rights. And we found maybe 15 different ways that we are not, uh, we're, not, we're not providing American citizens, people in the United States, not just citizens, residents, anyone who in the United States, regardless of citizenship, that we don't really provide them with these basic human rights that are enjoyed by many millions of people all around the world. Of course, there are countries that don't provide the same level of rights, uh, with, whether because of their nature of the regime that is, is in, or because of their uh, inability to provide certain protections, particularly in the context of social economic rights. But, but you really compare the United States is one, uh, you know, oldest democracy in the world, 
supposedly have a rule of law and supposedly we are also the richest country in the world. And an example. There's a lot of no reasons to be saying, look, where we can't afford that or we can't do it because we don't have a, a functioning legal system, uh, meaning in terms of systems that are supposedly to protect the rule of law and to protect fundamental rights. We do have those, but what, what happened is that those were created historically for, for under particularly distorted foundations, the foundations of excluding people rather than including people. Uh, and that's why we see uh, mass incarceration in the United States is directly linked to the history of, 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 uh, uh, of discrimination, segregation and against black people in the United States. It's and indigenous people as well. The same thing with policing, right? The same thing with uh, rejecting the rights uh, of people. I would even argue that it's no coincidence why we are treating women's rights to control their own body this, this way. Because there's a long history of uh, rejecting the idea that women would be equal citizens in our country. Uh, and, and our democracy operated under the assumption that, yeah, we could be a democracy and exclude half of the population and enslave um, you know, uh, the rest. Um, thousands and millions of people and, and, and do atrocities to the indigenous communities and we still be in the uh, democracy. So as long as we're not reckoning and we're not addressing those structural ways and how our system while improved over time, particularly because of the hard fought uh, civil rights movement and, uh, and, the, and the, the struggles of the women's rights uh, movement, the LGBTQ movement, the prisoners rights movement, the workers rights movement, all of those happened just because people fought for them, not because all of a sudden the system or the people who mainly, by the way, um, uh, predominantly white male politicians were sitting in the halls of Congress that decide to everybody who don't look like them uh, and they prescribed laws that were not always inclusive. In fact, many, many, many times it were discriminatory. So I think that we have a long history that exclude people and there is structure institutional racism that continues to impact the, the, the way that we understand and implement human rights or respect human rights of people. And therefore, we have to do both. We have to address the you know, history of, of atrocities, particularly in the context of what happened during that time in the era of slavery, um, era of Jim Crow. And that's why people now are talking about reparations as, a, as an important aspect of having this conversation and talk about what, what, why is that important then and it's important now and mm -hmm. then at the same time address new policies and new structures uh, that are ab abide that are committed to everyone's human rights and human dignity yeah so i don't see that though if we have a continuation of the trump administration i just don't see that really happening do you no it, it's not happening obviously now it's that's i'm describing what would right. be the what, what i'm saying the, if uh, he were to get a second term if, if Trump if, were to get a second term, I don't see uh, any, any movement no, in the I, right I, direction. I, 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 yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, if, if there would be a Trump, second Trump administration, we will only see further um, division, uh, escalation of uh, cracking down on rights of people and limiting rights, um, violating people's fundamental rights from immigrants to women to LGBTQ uh, to workers' rights to people with disabilities. All, all different people who have struggled hard to get their rights recognized, whether by law or by Supreme Court decisions. And the, and the Trump administration from day one um, had a list of actions that they're gonna take in order to undermine their, uh, and, 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 and take away those protections. And so that will be going in the wrong direction. But if there will be in, in a Biden administration, obviously there will be the first thing that they need to do is um, re, you know, do away and undo all the damage. That Recalibrate the this country. Exactly. They, and that is going to be a very challenging thing in terms of the priorities, in terms of the cap political capital, where they will be spending their time, especially if they don't have the Senate uh, majority. There will be a lot of executive actions, and yet the judiciary is more conservative. It's more ideological and that will be probably siding with a lot of 
uh, uh, the people who were trying to challenge uh, executive actions that would probably be uh, the right thing to do. Uh, for example, in the context of healthcare or in the context of immigration, the DACA or the Dreamers, or in the context of, um, uh, of pro providing more uh, uh, protections to women's rights in, in, you know, in the way that federal uh, assistance and federal support to, uh, to women's ability to, to have abortion, etc. So all of these things will be, will have to be uh, addressed and yet uh, there's there, there's so much damage to to undo that I'm I'm really concerned about how the new administration will be able to do that uh, and push for a more progressive uh, policies. The, the problem is that I fear they will try to go. It's not enough to go back to where we were in January 2017. That that was uh, there was a lot of problems back then too. Even under the Obama administration, if you remember, we had mass deportation that back then we had also family detention now we didn't have family separation in the way that the trump administration uh yeah this is exacerbated yeah but we had a family detention operation yes. uh, we worked on that the hotel detention facility in texas was a family detention facility that only under pressure from organizations like the aclu and a lot of organizing and the lawsuit that was brought to to end that sort of detention we had a problem with uh, in the context of um, uh, drones. The use of drones expanded dramatically under the, the Obama administration, and they only towards the end of the Obama administration they they realized that they have to put a check on the president's ability to execute individuals, including American citizens, with no due process. This happened under under Obama. He's the one who executed uh, uh, and, and killed Anwar al-Awlaki, who was an American citizen in Yemen without any due process, without following the federal law, uh, federal constitution, and international law in this case too. So I think that there's a lot of things that we need to undo, the damage that happened under Trump, but we need to push further because we need to do more in order to make sure that our rights are not just defined under the narrow understanding and definitions that are now likely to be expanded under the new judiciary, under the new Supreme Court, where, for example, you know, access to courts and justice is going to be more limited, more limited. Or, for example, the rights of certain people. I mean, we have, we heard already justices that want to um, cut uh, uh, or the reverse some of the uh, decisions that were made on LGBT rights, on, on marriage equality, on uh, issues of, um, uh, that relate to uh, questions of uh, of abortion rights or women's rights. But uh, whatever happened to stare decisis? You know, the things are settled. Well, yeah, happened? that's the thing is it, it's it's very become very politicized and it's become you know uh, well we we say the right thing during the the confirmation hearings or say nothing then, at all uh, and then we do whatever whatever we want once we are confirmed. I mean. That's what we saw in the last confirmation hearing by Judge Barrett. You know, she would say, well, although she said very outrageous things, like she wouldn't comment on simple question. Uh, do you think that family separation under, uh, under the, you know, they didn't even mention that, uh, Senator Cory Booker um, asked her, do you think that family separation is, 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 wrong, is wrong? And she said, well, I would not want to, I'm paraphrasing her, her answer, I don't want to weigh in on this because um, this is subject to uh, hot uh, public debate uh, or political debate. You know, she said that what's, about climate change. What's so as controversial well. about that? What's yeah. controversial about that is that it's any it's inhumane. That right. it's cruel policy. That right. uh, what what the what the Trump administration did. It's not about uh, a political opinion. Right. It is about fundamental freedom, fundamental of right. individuals and families' right. unity. And that this is this is the person who was who was bragging and was commended for her family values, right? Uh, and so I think that there's, a, we're, gonna have, we're gonna have an uphill battle in protecting and defending long fought rights uh, for a lot of people in America. Um, and it will be much more difficult to, uh, to, to, to push for more progressive uh, policies and laws because of the fact that this administration uh, if the if the Biden administration will come in, um, they will they will they will not have the 
the, the widest mandate. Uh, the, as we see, it's very tight race, unfortunately. And if, if they don't have the Senate, uh, a majority, then it will become really difficult to do much to do that. And that, that's really going to make, uh, make it more difficult for the most marginalized and most uh, and historically uh, uh, discriminated individuals and communities, particularly communities of color and poor people in the United right. States. Right. In closing, I just want to say that um, it looks like there was about 130 between uh, law, legal organizations and individuals that had commented, had sent comments about the, um, the commission's uh, report. I thought that was very telling. Yes, uh, that, there was a wide opposition. Uh, there were letters from faith leaders. There were letters from members of Congress. There were letters from, uh, from uh, international human rights organizations. There were letters from civil, civil rights organizations very strong opposition across the board, uh, both to the structure of the commission that was in there was not ideologically balanced. Uh, their lack even expertise in certain area, most of them were picked because of their commitment to religious freedom. We did the research, that's what, what, what those people were. Ideology. Ideology. And the second thing was really the, 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 the flaws in their interpretation and their understanding what human rights are and how it should be implemented and putting it in contrast to uh, decades long international universal understanding of human rights. It's not something that we can change. That's the, that's the thing. United States can be a, a bad player. It can be a bad um, influencer, but it can change international law the way uh, Pompeo wants. International law is well settled in many areas, particularly in the area of human rights. There's a lot more that, that not, not even a Trump administration can, can change that, fortunately. But obviously that, will, that means that a lot of people will suffer because of this new understanding of rights um, that, that goes both into domestic policy as well as foreign policy. Mm -hmm. Well, the international community doesn't have to accept it. And I'm sure there's gonna be a lot of pushback. Yes, and, and indeed, and they already have made it very clear. And I think next Monday, uh, the November 9th, uh, there will be a United States review before the UN Human Rights Council, uh, where the, the, the Trump administration, um, even if, if there will be a, a obviously an announcement uh, of a winner of the presidential election, they will still be representing the United States under the Trump administration on November 9th, because they, they will do that under you know, January 20th. But what they will say, they will, um, they will try to push their ideological understanding of human rights before the international uh, uh, community. And that we will see that government after government will be asking hard questions. They will be rejecting this understanding of human rights. Some of them are doing it very diplomatically, very politely, but some of them will be more outspoken, will be more critical. And they will be also addressing other uh, pressing issues. They will be addressing race, and racism and racial injustice in the United States, uh, the police uh, killing of black people, and particularly with impunity in the United States, they will be addressing the issues of uh, lack of fundamental rights, such as a right to, 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 to health care, uh, such as the right to um, water uh, and, and, and sanitation, the right to of people, of indigenous peoples. This is an area where the United States is, again, uh, an outlier uh, compared, you know, even compared to Canada, New Zealand, and Australia, you know, the, the, the colonial settler states. The United States is really the worst in terms of what we do in, in violating treaty rights and treaty obligations. Of indigenous people, yes. Of indigenous peoples. I mean, we saw it in Standing Rock where they're just now uh, reopening the environmental assessment of the, the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline. We're seeing it in other places where sacred, sacred sites are violated. Sacred We're sites. Yes. Their religious freedom uh, under the customs and traditions of indigenous peoples are being violated over and over. It had to be fought. They had to file uh, lawsuits or jurisdiction wise that how tribes that have been recognized under federal law is, is not having the same powers that they should have under the treaties. I mean, the Oklahoma decision, the recent one regarding land and jurisdiction, jurisdictional uh, tribe, uh, tribal jurisdictional um, issues in Oklahoma is really a, a, an exception, not the rule. 
most of the, the decisions by the Supreme Court in the last several decades were very, very uh, damaging and very uh, uh, um, seriously and grossly violated the rights of indigenous people. So we have a lot to, uh, to do and, and, and do better. I think the Monday review will be a check on the United States under the Trump administration, but also more generally, it's not just the executive branch. It will look at state and local governments. You know, we, most of the, the rights, most of human rights, as you know, are actually implemented on the state and local level. So we really need to work with those leaders, with these officials. Uh, Columbia Human Rights Institute has been working with some leaders that will be issuing a statement uh, in support of human rights. Uh, that's really important that these kinds of uh, initiatives of state and local mayors, governors, attorney generals, even state legislatures, uh, uh, other actors at the state and local level take seriously our human rights. That's the only way that we can make progress with or without a federal government, meaning state and local governments, they can do that. They can make commitments uh, under, the, under the Paris Protocol with regard to climate change. That's what we saw California doing. Even though the Trump administration withdrew from the Paris Protocol on climate change, mm -hmm. California said, uh, uh, the governor and as a state, they said they would follow that. Uh, they brought a, a business uh, community with, with them to say we will be working in reducing emissions um, and so forth. So, so that, that is, that's something that we will have to be prepared to work in whatever outcome that we will, 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 will see um, you know, next few days and weeks uh, after the presidential elections. Thank you for the information and uh, I guess the fight goes on. Absolutely, thank you very much for having me, Mary. Thank you. I wanna thank our guest, Attorney Jamil Dacroix, for sharing his insights and opinions on international human rights and the U.S. role in this endeavor. I also want to thank you, our viewers, for tuning in. For more information on today's topic and our guest, visit The Legal Edition online at thelegaledition.com. And remember, this information is for general educational purposes. It is not legal advice. And now you can download our podcast and subscribe online. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter.